Well, as we come to God's Word now, we are up to the 24th instalment of our series through Matthew's Gospel, which matches up with chapter 24. And uh, the title of tonight is The End of the World. Let me lead us in prayer. Loving Father, we thank you so much that you do speak to us through your Word, and we pray that we would understand this part of the Bible, uh, especially as it contains some things that uh, can be tricky to work out. We thank you, Lord, that we have your Holy Spirit and that he helps us in this. And we pray that as we come to terms with what you have written here for us, that we might trust in you and delight in your work in your world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever said to a person in distress, oh, it's not the end of the world. It's probably not what they teach crisis counsellors to say, I'd suggest. Uh, but it is an interesting way that we've, we've made this expression part of common speech. Uh, but what's the end of the world actually like? Well, the most common source of information for our world is, of course, Hollywood. Uh, there is a page in Wikipedia, of course, dedicated to listing every single so-called apocalyptic film that is out there. You would think Wikipedia, in their kindness, would count them for me, but no. So with my screen in front of me, I counted them. Uh, who thinks there's more than 100? Who thinks there's more than 200? Who thinks there's more than 300? Who thinks there's more than 400? 361. That's not bad. That's a lot of apocalyptic films. And uh, it's a lot of Martian invasions. And it's a lot of giant asteroids. And I suspect that the reason that people are attracted to this kind of film genre is because when we see people go through the ultimate crisis, when they think that it is just about the time when the world will end, then you see them focus on what matters most, except that most recent one on Netflix. Uh, but the problem with the Hollywood view of the end of the world is that it easily leads us to miss out on the most incredible catastrophe, a catastrophe of all times, the greatest catastrophe of all times. And that catastrophe is the killing of the Messiah by his own people. There is nothing more shocking in history than this. This is the most earth-shattering, heaven-shaking event than has ever happened. The crucifixion is the most catastrophic event ever. I know that's a big call, but this is the way that the Bible describes the crucifixion. But any talk about the so-called end times is, of course, controversial amongst Christians. Uh, in fact, there are, I'm sure there are different views amongst people in our church even here about these things. But regardless of what you believe about when and how Jesus will return and what will happen when he does, we can still unite in carefully reading the Bible together, which is what we're going to do now. And we'll do that as we look at Matthew chapter 24, which is our next instalment. Because in this chapter, I think what we're about to see is we're going to see Jesus talk about the most catastrophic event in history, which is the tragic rejection that led to his execution. And here's how it all begins. Verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple grounds, his disciples pointed out to him the various temple buildings. Why would they do that? You know, it's not like it's the first time Jesus has turned up to Jerusalem. He says, oh, where's the temple? Oh, thanks for letting me know. 
I think what they're doing is they've just been through this really intense time of conflict with the Jewish leaders and it all ended with Jesus condemning those leaders for killing the prophets. Remember what he said? He said, I tell you the truth, this judgment will fall on this very generation. It's been pretty stressful, pretty unnerving in a lot of ways. And so the disciples point to something that is solid, something that has a deep foundation. They turn to this huge temple complex that's made out of impressively big stones. But more than just a picture of strength, it's a sign of God's protection. The temple is a picture of God's protection. It's like they were doing what was said in Psalm 48, where it says, Go, inspect the city of Jerusalem, walk around and count its many towers, Take note of the fortified walls and tour all the citadels so that you may describe them to future generations for that is what God is like. He is our God forever and ever and he will guide us until we die. Seemed like a good thing to say. But what does Jesus say? Verse 2, he says, You see all these buildings? I tell you the truth. They will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. He says that these buildings in which you may well place your trust are about to be smashed to pieces. The symbol of the strength of the temple, the heart of the worship of God's people will be demolished. But when? He says in verse 3, we read later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. His disciples came to him privately and said, tell us, when will this all happen? What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? They're basically saying, are we at the end of the end times? That's a good question for us tonight, isn't it? Are we at the end of the end times? Are we months away? Are we even days away from the final return of Jesus? Would it change the way you look at the world if you knew for certain that 2022 was the very last year ever? Would it change the way you feel about your superannuation? Would it change the way that you think about those exams that are coming up at the end of the year? You see, if Jesus knows that the temple's about to be destroyed, they reckon maybe he'll probably know the exact timing as well. And so they say, what is the sign of his return? Or, as another version of the Bible, the ESV says, what is the sign of his return? coming. Now the word in the original language can mean either of those things. It can either mean return or it can mean coming. It's the word that's often used about the second coming of Jesus. But it's also, this is a bit nerdy, so but stick with me on this, it's also the same word that can be used about the arrival or the presence of a person. So I'll show you 2 Corinthians 7. But God who encourages those who are discouraged encouraged us by the arrival of Titus. He could have used the word coming of Titus or he could have used the return of Titus. And then the next verse it says, his presence was a joy. There's the same word again. His presence was a joy, but so was the news he brought of the encouragement he received from you. What I'm trying to show from this is that one particular word in the original language, don't get too tied up in this, but one particular word can mean coming, return, arrival or presence, depending on the context. And different versions, you don't need to know Greek to know this, 
unfortunately. Uh, but you can see with the different translations, they'll take different choices about which word they want to use and for good reason. And pretty much they almost mean the same thing, don't they? But what it does mean is that the questions that the Jesus disciples asked him, it could have been, what sign will signal your return? Or I could have said, what sign will signal your coming? Or it could say, what sign will signal your presence? Or what sign will signal your arrival? Can you see there that there's a couple of little slightly different meanings there that would have been pretty clear at the time what he was saying? But with all of this, whatever it is, the disciples thought that the end of the world would happen when the temple was destroyed and they wanted to know a sign of when that signal event would happen. See, they see that the temple will be destroyed and that will be the end of time, both of them together. How does Jesus answer the question? Well, he starts with a warning about false teachers. He says in verses 4 and 5, don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many. Right at that point, Jesus' answer is that there's going to be more conflict about leadership, just like they've been having in the past chapter. If you didn't hear the talk last week, you can have a quick read of the chapter before in Matthew, and you can see there's huge biff there. I mean, like this, snakes Sons of vipers, how will you escape the judgment of hell? Uh, that's one of many things that Jesus said to these false teachers. And he tells the disciples, watch out for them in these last days. Because in these last days, these coming days, the religious leaders will try and deceive all the disciples and all believers and deceive us in a way that will mislead about the true Messiah, Jesus. So Jesus warned them in those days there before the first Easter to make sure they're not deceived about who Jesus really is. Jesus warns them to avoid being deceived about him. Then he goes on to talk about a whole lot of conflicts and wars and all sorts of disasters. Let me read from verse 6 through to verse 8. And you'll hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world. But all of this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. What he's saying is that life before the great end time event will be full of grief and conflict. That sort of stuff that might make us panic. It's a bit like that now, isn't it? And for thousands of years since that moment, there have been wars like that's happening in the Ukraine right now. And there have been plagues like COVID-19. And there have been disasters, even like the recent horrible floods. That's what living in this broken world is like. That's what living in this broken world that longs for the new creation is like. COVID and the Ukraine war are signs that Jesus is returning soon. But the signs have been happening for thousands of years. So be alert, but not alarmed. But then Jesus warns the disciples that for them, those disciples, at that particular point in history, what's about to happen to them is going to be really hard. He says, verse 9, Then you will be arrested, persecuted and killed. You'll be hated all 
over the world because you are my followers. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere and the love of many will grow cold. His picture there is of, of a world that's gone crazy where there's persecution that is rife amongst other things. We don't see a whole lot of persecution in Australia, but I tell you what, it is happening every day in other parts of the world where people are being killed right now for following the Lord Jesus. And it won't make the news. But Jesus' words to the disciples back then, they were specifically speaking to them about what would happen in the actual few days ahead of them. And this is really important if we're to get our head around this chapter of the Bible. He's saying, what is about to happen to you blokes right there at that time in history is going to be pretty full on. We read of those things there that we see the list of all the things that will happen and we think, well, Jesus will be arrested, persecuted and killed, won't he? And some of Jesus' own disciples will turn away and betray him and hate. The future that Jesus spoke about was only days away. So what was the right response for the disciples? What was the right response right then on the, on the very edge of the coming of Jesus to be on his throne? What's well, the same response for those of us who live on the other side of the cross? And that is that the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's about endurance. Those first disciples needed to endure because it was going to be really rough for them the next few days. And now we who come after them also need to endure as we await Jesus' second coming. Being a Christian is a long game. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Isn't it a great joy when someone becomes a Christian for the very first time? It's wonderful to see the buzz as they start to enjoy certainty for eternity. Maybe you can remember when that's happened to you. Maybe it hasn't happened to you yet. And you're just thinking, does it make any difference? Well, I can tell you what, speak to someone who's followed Jesus and you can see it has turned their life upside down for the better. But the problem is that not everybody who starts well will finish well. Jesus taught in the parable of the soils that some people won't endure to the end. And so that's why we come and meet like this, to keep each other going. You've heard me say this before, but we don't come to church to impress God, like God's up there keeping a roll saying, oh yeah, 55% attendance, that's good enough. The reason we come to church is to help each other endure to the end. That's what we're doing here. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're cheering on others. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you're hearing all the, all the cheering and you're thinking, oh, I need to get on board with this, hopefully. But what might stop you from finishing the race? Does something immediately spring to mind? Is, is there a thing in particular that might get you in the way of you enduring to the end? Well, Jesus said that if we don't endure to the end, then we won't be saved. It's a pretty serious warning. But then he tells us when the end will come. And this is sort of the answer they've been waiting for. 
He says, and the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it and then the end will come. The end will happen after the good news is preached everywhere. Now, in a way, that's old news for us. We kind of expected there'd be a time, you know, Jesus dies, he rises from the dead, he goes to be ascended into heaven, and then after that, there's a whole lot of stuff happening, and we expect that to go on for a while, because it's gone on for about 2,000 years. But this would have been new news right now for these disciples. Like I said before, they were thinking the big catastrophic event, like the de destruction of the temple, that was going to be the trigger to the end of everything. But Jesus is saying here, actually, there's going to be a bit of a gap. Quite a bit of a gap. Because the arrival or the presence or the coming of Jesus was only a little while away for these first disciples. Only a few days, really. But the final end of time would be much, much later. So what's that going to be like? Well, Jesus now starts to use some slightly weird apocalyptic language. Uh, it's like what we read in the Old Testament book of Daniel. And it's what we've seen, of course, in the New Testament book of Revelation. It's a whole lot of kind of, um, how do you put it, it's sort of fancy picture-like language that uses numbers and, and images and all that sort of stuff to describe something that's almost too hard to describe. Now, that's the nature of apocalyptic. It's, it's big, broad brush strokes. It's, it's supposed to be a dramatic picture of an extraordinary and catastrophic event, not to sort of be dissected and, and finally, and, and finally um, sort of examined for clues like you're a forensic detective at a crime scene. It's not, that's not what we're supposed to do with apocalyptic language. But what does Jesus say? Well, he starts off verse 15. He says, The day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet talked about, the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing in the holy place. Reader, pay attention. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink, in other words. See, two centuries before Jesus, a king did a horrible thing inside the temple. Uh, what animal do you think is most unclean for a Jew? It's a pig. So what did this guy do? He, he burnt pigs on the altar of the temple. Sacrilegious. It's a little bit like burning a flag, what that does for a nation when you burn the flag? Kind of. But it was so much worse than that. And Jesus is basically saying, that kind of thing that we saw a couple of hundred years before, that Daniel talked about much earlier than that, that's the kind of thing that's going to happen in this massive event when there's the coming. He's basically saying that, that the most holy thing of all is about to be made unholy. The most holy thing will be made unholy. What is the most holy thing of all? Or let me put it another way. Who is the most holy thing, holy person of all? It's Jesus, isn't it? Jesus himself is the presence of God amongst his people. He is the essence of holiness. He is greater than the temple. And yet what they are about to do is to kill the Holy Messiah. And the Holy Messiah would take upon himself the punishment for every unholy thing. It's the ultimate 
catastrophic desecration. And that is what is going to happen. And Jesus said it will happen soon. And when that catastrophic event happens, all sorts of calamity will follow. Verse 16. Let me read it out from 16 to 22 in a slab. He says, Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A, a person out in the deck of a roof must not go down to the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For there will be greater anguish than at any time since the world began, and it will never be so great again. In fact, unless that time of calamity is shortened, not a single person will survive. But it will be shortened for the sake of God's chosen ones. What does all that mean? Well, it's certainly a whole lot of apocalyptic horror, isn't it? It's a horrible picture. It's a time, Jesus describes, as when there will be greater anguish than at any time since the world began. Which, you've got to say, big call. I mean, a lot of horrible stuff happened in the few thousand years before Jesus walked on earth, right? And he's saying, you ain't seen nothing yet. You're thinking, whoa, big call, Jesus. But then there'll be temptation to turn from the true Messiah. Verse 23 to verse 27. Then if anyone tells you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. He says, see, I have warned you about this ahead of time. So if someone tells you, look, the Messiah's out in the desert, don't bother to go and look. Or, look, he's hiding there. Don't believe it. For as the lightning flashes in the east and shines to the west, so it will be when the Son of Man comes. Just as the gathering of vultures shows that there's a carcasses nearby, so these signs indicate the end is near. That is when it will happen, all this dramatic stuff. The end is near. The disciples are saying, Jesus, this is pretty heavy stuff. When's it going to happen? Give us a bit of an idea. And he says it's near. You're thinking, ah, near. Well, what does that mean? Well, having given them this layer upon layer of apocalyptic imagery, he, he says this, verse 29, he says, immediately after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. This is real kind of like apocalyptic, catastrophic, sort of huge, big thing, exploding sort of movie stuff, right? But read what it says in Matthew chapter 27, verse 45, soon before Jesus died. It said, At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. Yeah, whatever. So. No, not yeah, whatever. Complete darkness like you've got up in the middle of the night across the whole of the land. Uh, it wasn't like Matthew's Gospel was just sort of thrown together and like a, a late night essay writing fest, trying to get the thing in in time. He, everything is carefully put there. And what Jesus has said 
you can see how it matches up right there. What we've got to see here is that the most catastrophic event was at the cross. We can think of all these other catastrophic things, but the most catastrophic event was at the cross, and that is what Jesus is describing right here. But after that, Jesus says, verse 30 and 31, And then at last the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens, and there will be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a mighty blast of a trumpet, and they will gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. Now, it might feel like he's talking about the future way after his death and resurrection and ascension. But there is a minority view that I'm happy to sign up to that says that this is actually talking about Jesus' coming to the throne, which happened at the cross. That is the most important event in the universe, right there. We sort of say, yeah, Easter, 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 but what's the big exciting thing that's coming after that? It's like, no, 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 blink and you miss it. It's there. It's happened. And one of the ways that helps us understand that is flick back to the Old Testament and see the way that it spoke about the day when the Lord would do his amazing rescue. For example, Zechariah, a couple of weeks ago, Man of Olive, what are they reading from? Zechariah, Zechariah, Zechariah. Well, what does Zechariah say? 12.10, Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the family of David and on the people of Jerusalem. They will look on me whom they have pierced and mourn for him as for an only son. They will grieve bitterly for him as for a firstborn son who died. Which is followed just a couple of verses later by this. On that day a fountain will be opened for the dynasty of David and for the people of Jerusalem, a fountain to cleanse them from all their sins and impurity. See, Zechariah saying, this massively big event's going to happen with all this woohoo, hoo-ha and, and, you know, catastrophic sort of apocalyptic stuff. And Jesus is just ticking those boxes right here as he describes what's about to happen at the cross. The language of Jesus matches Zechariah. Um, Daniel chapter 12. Daniel's sort of hovering around all behind this as well. Daniel 12, 1 and 2. At that time, Michael, the archangel who stands guard over your nation, will arise. Then there'll be a time of anguish greater than any since the first nations came into existence. But at that time, every one of your people whose name is written in the book will be rescued. The resurrection. Many of those whose bodies lie dead and buried will rise up, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting disgrace. The anguish will be followed by a resurrection. Just like the death of Jesus is followed by his resurrection, which begins our resurrection. But when will it happen? Verse 32. Well, Jesus says this. Now learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, you can know his return is very near, right at the door. I tell you the truth. This generation, I'll say it again, 
This generation will not pass from the scene until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. Jesus is saying that all of this will happen in this generation. At face value, it seems like he's saying it's going to happen at the start of the first century, doesn't it? I think that's the most logical, obvious way to read it. All this stuff's going to happen to the people who are alive in front of him, around 30 AD or so. Which I think gives more clarity to what Jesus is saying. He's using this apocalyptic language to describe this extraordinary event. The crucifixion of Jesus. The catastrophic end of the world event of this chapter. But when's it going to happen? Well, Jesus said it'll happen suddenly. Verse 26, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. They need to be ready. They need to be ready for the catastrophic moment. Because Jesus is saying, it's happening, guys, real soon. Get ready, get ready, get ready. Don't be like the pagans at the time of Noah, he says. He says, when the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time that Noah entered his boat. People didn't realise what was going to happen until the flood came and it swept them all away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. And it will come suddenly, like an abduction. Verse 40, two men will be working together in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. And they need to keep watch, verse 42. So you too must keep watch. For you don't know what day your Lord is coming. The coming of the Lord, when he finally sits on his throne, will be sudden. Sudden like a thief. Verse 43, understand this, if a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he'd keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time for the Son of Man will come when least expected. He's saying that when the Son of Man comes upon his throne in Jerusalem, it will be a surprise. And so those disciples, as they stand there with Jesus, they're going to be ready all the time, waiting for that moment when it hits. I mean, how can Jesus make it any clearer? They've got to be alert, but not alarmed, ready and prepared for that moment. And then he says these things, verse 45 through to 51. I'll read a slab. He says, A faithful, sensible servant is one to whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. If the master returns and finds the servants done a good job, there'll be a reward. But I tell you, And I tell you the truth, the master will put that servant in charge of all he owns. But what if the servant's evil and thinks, my master won't be back for a while, and he begins beating the other servants, partying and getting drunk? The master will return unannounced and unexpected, and he will cut the servant to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is basically saying, you disciples need to be alert but not alarmed. You need to wait patiently and faithfully. Because this catastrophic and glorious day will come at a time when you won't expect it. Like Jesus said before, verse 42, you too must keep 
watch, for you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Keep watch. Keep watch. Keep watch. Two chapters later, Jesus said that to his disciples again. Keep watch. Keep watch. Just before his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, we read, Jesus returned to the disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Be alert, not alarmed. All this stuff's going to happen. The end of the world as we know it. And what are you doing? Snoozing. Jesus and his disciples knew that catastrophic moment was coming and they had to be ready, but sadly the timing took them by surprise, all of them. And it was a day of great sadness and grief, just as Jesus said it would be. But the Son of Man did come and he did take his place on the throne. And at the cross... The crown of thorns was placed on his head at that catastrophic coronation. But as they all mourned for the ones they pierced, as they mourned for the one they pierced, you might say, it's not the end of the world. But when the creator of the universe was killed by his creatures when the author of life had his life taken away when the prince of glory died upon the wondrous cross that was the end of the world as we knew it and it was the start of the dawn of the new creation Amen. We're going to sing our final song now. Ancient of Days.